All right, so one of the, the good things about expository preaching, that's, by the way, that's, if you're not sure, that's what we want to do here at First Saint Church, is have expository preaching, um, which means to draw the meaning out of the text. We don't want to just put our own ideas into the text of the Bible. We're supposed to draw from it what God is intending. And so one of the good things about expository verse-by-verse preaching is that it compels us to deal with everything that the text says. We're not allowed to just pick and choose topics that we like, and we're not allowed then to just skip over texts that we don't like And when we commit to teaching verse-by-verse through a book. And verse-by-verse is good in the sense that it, it attempts to capture the whole counsel of what God says. It's good for doctrinal preaching because it gives us time to consider the doctrines that God reveals in the text. But there's a difficulty that comes with it as well. Sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees when we're committed to a verse-by-verse expository style. And the section that we're at tonight in Revelation 6 is it's part of one long vision that's a building off of previous information that was already contained in, the, in those previous chapters. And that prior information serves as the context for understanding it. And so we need to remember those things if, before we get to the text for tonight so that we can have the, the right mindset about the things that we're studying tonight. And so the first thing that we see back in chapter 4 is we're given this encouraging glimpse into the throne room of God. And we see how God is worshipped in all of his sovereignty. He's totally in control over all creation. There is none more powerful. There is none more mighty than who God is. And then and all, and all of creation is shown as giving God glory. And all of creation does give God glory because he is its creator. A creation can't help but give God glory, either by declaring it through its beauty, like if you were to look up at a starlit sky or a sunset or just the vastness of a mountain range or, or anything like that in creation, the complexity of, the, of a human cell or the body in general. Or so creation also gives God glory by consciously choosing to obey him. And then also uh, those who choose to not obey God through rebellion, God is glorified as well by, with his righteous and holy judgment as it's shown and displayed through that rebellion. And then the scene changes slightly in chapter 5. There's a scroll, and it's important that this, it's an important scroll, and this scroll is, it's important that it gets opened because right now, presently when it's introduced, it's sealed, and John starts weeping because it's sealed, and there's no one found that's worthy to open it, but then someone calls out to John and says, look, there's the lamb, and the lamb is worthy to open it. There's another figure in the throne room. It's the lamb of God. It's Jesus who's introduced at that point, and he's the only one that's, that's worthy to open the scroll that contains this further revelation, because, and he's worthy because of who he is. He's true God, and he's true man. And what he has done, and being true God and true man, in fulfilling the role of the covenant of redemption, sometimes the covenant of redemption is called the pactum salutis, or the pact of salvation between the Godhead, in which Jesus' role in that was to come into the world to be born of a virgin, born under the law, and yet do what no man was able to do, and that is to keep the law of God perfectly. He never once sinned. And then he went to the cross, to satisfy the wrath of God, the wrath of the Father against the sin of all those who believe and who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And he died there on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. 
He didn't stay dead on the third day. He, he was risen because he was without guilt and he was without sin. And then after that, he ascended to heaven after being seen by the apostles and disciples for about 40 days. And so that, all of that makes Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. And it means that he's worthy to open up the scroll because he earned a spot at the right hand of the Father. So he lives to make intercession for us there. He lives to be our perfect advocate. And this scroll that he's able to open, it contains generalizations of what life is like in this present evil age as Jesus builds his church and rescues people from the curse of the law and original sin. Whenever someone is saved, it's what's happening, we could say, is that God has rescued them from the curse of the law and the consequences of sin. And Jesus is Lord over all of these events that are described in the beginning of chapter 6, even giving authority and permission to these so-called four horsemen to bring about all the events of the world at specific times that happen that will contribute to the building of the church. And that building of the church, that engrafting in of people into the family of God by being born again, by being filled with the Spirit, often comes through, or it includes, suffering. God has shown himself throughout the previous 65 books of the Bible to have victory in such a way that makes his enemies and those who hate him think that they are winning, but in fact, their condemnation is becoming evident before them through these events that are often the means that God is using to soften the hearts of the elect and confirm their salvation in their suffering and continual faithfulness to him through it. I mean, the most obvious point, of course, is the cross, right? where it seemed as if the whole plan had come to an end. Jesus, who was supposed to be the Messiah, dies on the cross. Even the disciples all scattered. They, they, weren't, they didn't know to, how to make sense of the fact that he had died, and they you know, weren't understanding the promise that he was going to return on the third day. But he, Jesus gaining victory through what looks like defeat is a common theme. And so we see that happening through um, those first four seals being opened in chapter 6. And of course, that also means that that victory that Christ has, it comes with what we could say is a cost to the church. And Christ supplies to us and he graciously gives to us grace so we can patiently endure suffering and, and, and trials. And some of us, some Christians even, just like Jesus, will end up being martyred for what they believe and teach. And so in verse 9, we're introduced to that fifth seal. And when Jesus opens it, we see the response of the church to the events that are brought about by the four horsemen. We learned about the suffering and, the, and that is typical for those who love God and how they respond to it last time. And remember, it doesn't go unnoticed. The Lord will vindicate his holy name. God is God and God is just. And he will punish sin in his time. And that is what the sixth seal explains. And we'll spend most of our time tonight thinking about the sixth seal and seeing what that says. But let's read God's word. And we'll, we'll start at the fifth seal again, since that's where we were last time. And we'll read through the end of chapter 6, and we'll pray after we read, okay? So this is God's word, beginning at verse 9 in Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer 
until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when it's shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for preserving your word for us for giving this vision and this revelation to the apostle john that it might be contained so that we can be helped by it lord and we do ask holy spirit that you would guide us and bring us into a right understanding of what your word says uh, we know even lord coming into this specific passage that it is much debated among professing believers and Perhaps there is room to have that debate here, but we ask, Lord God, that you'd help us to understand it in the light of what the rest of your word says so that we may exalt you and glorify you. You are worthy of all glory and honor, so please help us, Lord, to be focused now and to understand rightly what it is that your word is is teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so when the fifth seal is opened, right, so you have this scroll, there's seven seals on it, four of them have been opened. There's a fifth one that's open now, and, and with that fifth opened seal, a new revelation comes, a new perspective change um, happens. And specifically for this one, with the fifth seal, we're no longer thinking of events that are happening on the earth, but now the focus is back into this throne room in heaven. It's back into what's happening in heaven. And again, it's, it's symbolic. We're not supposed to take literally everything from here, but we'll deal with that more as we come to it. But no longer is the focus on the earth and the persecution that's happening over the ages to the church, but now the focus is on the response to those actions. And first, we see the response from Christians, and then in the sixth seal, the response from God. And so just because we understand that God is in control of the events described in the first seals, doesn't mean that Christians simply go through them like robots, without any feeling or without a sense of justice for them. Although Christians are rightly said to be not from the kingdom of this world, John 18, 36, we are still, of course, in this world, and the things that take place in this world affect us, and we should respond appropriately. And nobody likes to suffer or be persecuted, right? That's not something a normal person likes. Nevertheless, we do understand that it will happen. We talked about that a lot last time. But we should be assured and reassured because God will punish sin. Nobody gets away with anything from the viewpoint of God. The, the suffering and persecution that a Christian endures will be met with justice and sin will be paid for either on the individual who sins or it will have been paid for on Christ. Just like our sins, if we are saved here this evening, have been paid for on Christ. And so God is God and God is just and he will punish sin in his time. And that's what we see happening here at the end of what is called the, the fifth seal into the, into the description of the sixth seal. God Almighty is going to judge and avenge the blood of his people. And remember, the idea 
here is more than just that even. It's more than just those who are martyred. More, the idea is more than just those who are killed for their faith in Christ, although that's certainly here. It's for those who are suffering in any sort of context on account of the word. It's the word of God. So even the, the smallest offense to the, against the church, to the largest offense, which would be death, will be vindicated by God in his time. And so let's begin at verse 11 tonight. We talked about this verse a little bit last time, how it is that the saints were already actually at rest, right? They, they're wanting God to vindicate his name, which is good and, and holy and a right thing to desire. But it's not like they're uneasy, and it's not like they're being tormented in heaven. And so we read in verse 11, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer. So they're, they're already resting. They have to rest a little while longer. The implication is that they are already resting. Our time in heaven before the second coming of Christ, though we don't have our glorified bodies yet, it is still a time of restful, peaceful solidarity in Christ. They're clothed in white robes, symbolizing the eternal justification that they have in Christ through his blood that was shed for them. It's a true symbol of their victory. Uh, there's, there's no more fight for them in heaven. There's nothing that they have to do to earn their place before God. Jesus has himself done all of that. And so they are already at rest. But now they're told to rest a little while longer. And that's interesting. I mean, what do we make of time in a place like heaven? And, and, and because he's saying just rest a little while longer. And granted, we're dealing with symbolism by and large here in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ from John. So maybe we shouldn't make a big deal of it at all. But a quote a little longer is subjective in some sense, because some could have been there for what is about 4,000 years from our point of view, or a decade, or even a few days when John is writing this. And it's even more complicated by the fact that the seals described in verses 1 through 8 are depicting a time span of about, you know, well, who knows how long. It's depicting a time span between Christ's first and second coming. The time span that we are currently in, uh, that this present evil age. And so John, as he's giving this revelation, he's, he's dealing with events that have happened already and future events at the same time. And so when we think of when we when we th- when we think of this phrase a little while longer and we try to understand this concept of time passing in a in a place where the passing of time seems of little consequence what should we think I mean in heaven you you live you never die our whole understanding of time is really a concept of time is really based on the fact that things have an expiration date here in our in our life we we have a start a finish well once we are in heaven in this eternal state in this eternal age there is going to be no end what do we think of time what, what is how do we age in heaven that's mysterious to me i don't know that i understand aging in heaven maybe there just is no such thing as aging at all we, we don't know for sure but nevertheless here's this scene in heaven, and John's encouragement from, that he records from Jesus is that they, these saints need to just wait a little longer. 
We might think of what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 3.8, and he quotes from Psalm 94 here. He says, With the Lord, a, thousand day, or a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so, you know, thinking of all these things together, what the Word is telling us, if we, if we consider the fact that this is apocalyptic literature, that we're dealing with past and future from John's standpoint, and, and the, just simply the mystery of time in heaven is that a little longer here is best to be not understood in the way that we normally think of time. Like if I'm going and how time moves, like if I'm taking my family on a trip to um, Disneyland and, and they ask me how, how long till we get there, I might say, well, just a little longer. And that's a measurable period of time. But I don't think that's what we're supposed to think here when we see this here in verse 11. It seems to be more of a theological category that is being put forth here. Because from the vantage point of redemptive history, the plan by which God will fulfill the pactum salutis and by which he will save all of those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, from that aspect, there's only one more thing left at the time of giving of this, this fifth seal. So that's why I think if you think of it in that framework, a little longer makes sense. So if you think of it from the garden... After that first sin, the original sin, and the fall there in the garden, the gospel is preached to Adam and to Eve in Genesis 3. God's will has been done in bringing about salvation to those um, who were condemned in Adam since then even. And roughly 4,000 years of history go take place, and, and the Messiah lands on the scene, and he does what he intended to do. He doesn't inherit guilt from Adam because he's born miraculously. He's born of a virgin. He's the second Adam, according to Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. He never sins. He never, because he never sins, that means he never merits death. He never earns the wages of sin, which is death, since he never sinned. So death has no claim on him. And yet he dies as a substitute for all those who do sin, but who were elected in him. And then he's exalted to heaven and in doing so, his death pays what our sins demand. And then when the Holy Spirit works new life in us and faith in us, he's applying the benefits of Christ Jesus' sinless life to us so that we are accredited with his righteousness, so that we are clothed in Christ as it were, and so that when God sees us, and we can be certain at that point that his welcome to us will be well done, good and faithful servant not because of what we have done or didn't do, but because of what Christ has done for you. you you've heard that before, right? That Then the Bible talks about um, God saying, well done, like in a parable. He'll say to this one who does this certain thing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well, the idea there is that we don't, I, at least I certainly do not, want to stand before God and claim my own righteousness, my own. I don't want to stand before God and have him look at Paul and say, and say look, look at all that you did. And if he did that, I don't think he would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because God is so holy, his standard is perfect righteousness. But when we are born again, we are saved when Christ's atoning work is applied to us. And we are clothed with Christ, as it were. Well, then that statement, well done, my good and faithful servant, becomes ours. Because when God looks at us in that time of judgment, he sees Christ. He sees what Christ has done for you. That's why it's essential for us to only rely on Christ for our salvation. And then 
You know, there are these events which take place in this time span that we're now living in, which were described through those four seals and those four horsemen, and now the fifth seal, the response of the saints to those who are in heaven, to those trials that, they, that were met on earth. And so from this perspective, it's only been a little while, it's only a little while longer now that they have to wait. There's only two more seals to be described, and the events of, seal, of the seal six and seal seven are all that's left, and it's the events of seal six that will bring about the vindication of God's holy name. So it's, it's just a little bit longer. You know, the, the saints in heaven, they haven't cried out in vain. The Lord hears and he knows. It's a great encouragement for the church. But there's, a, there's another aspect to this waiting that must be considered here in our text as well. It's, it's not uncommon for Christians to wonder when it is that Christ will return and usher in the eternal age. Uh, of, of course, you know, many predictions have been made over the years, and they've all been wrong, of course. But this is the big question from the garden on, really. Don't you, when will things be made right? Don't you wonder, in some way at least, when will Christ return? It's okay to wonder about that. It's okay even to say, Maranatha, you know, Lord, come quickly. We see that in, in the epistles. That there's this mindset, there's this desire of desiring Christ to come quickly so that our suffering would be put to an end. And you see, all of life in some sense is in some sense eschatological. Remember, eschatology is the theology or the study of the end times. And we make the mistake often to think eschatology is only future. But really, from the very first pages of the Bible, eschatology has been the main theme. Mankind has been looking to get back into the, to paradise ever since we were kicked out. The end has been in the view since the very beginning. Redeemed mankind understands that return to paradise means close communion and joyful fellowship with God, whereas the rest of the world looks to be satisfied in anything else. But God has been alluding to this concept for thousands of years, again, since the, since the fall and the promise of the gospel. And he floods the whole world, and he spares Noah and his family in an ark, showing that the world, the whole world, is indeed in need of cleansing, but it's only those that are in his ark that will be spared through such judgment. And the ark pointed to Christ. And the eschatological vision continues. And then he enters into a covenant with Abraham and he promises him a land. And this land was essentially to be like a new garden, a place where God would dwell with his people, a new paradise should Israel be obedient. But Canaan was like the first garden and Israel was far too much like Adam and that wasn't it either. And so the eschatological view continues. And then when Christ came to the earth, the nation of Israel was by and large confused. Some believed and followed Jesus truthfully, but many only did so because of what they thought he would be ushering in. Uh, what, what many only followed him and believed because of what they thought they were going to get out of it. They believed he was ushering in the end of all things and, and the new beginning right then and right at that very moment. And so remember, he enters Jerusalem on the fowl of a donkey on, at Pentecost. And he's, he's worshipped, not at Pentecost, at what we call Palm Sunday. And he's worshipped as a king at that time. They're laying palm branches down. Remember what they're saying to him? Hosanna in the highest. They're chanting it. They're treating him as if like he's the king. 
But once it becomes clear that he's not ushering in the kingdom at the way they thought, they turn on him. And those very same people who worshipped him at that time were played a crucial part on, in his crucifixion. And what they failed to understand at that moment was that the promises of the covenant of grace, which were revealed in typological form to Abraham, concerning a people as numerous as the stars and that the nation of the world would be blessed through him, were yet to be realized. That the Messiah's coming would happen in two stages. And so... You see the second coming or the second advent, the, uh, the theological term for Jesus' second coming is called the parousia. Uh, this, his parousia hadn't happened, wouldn't come right then. It, he was going to come in two stages. And so it's not, and he hasn't come yet to usher in uh, the eternal age. His parousia hasn't yet happened. It's still going to happen. The second coming, the second advent is still to happen. And it's not random that it hasn't happened yet. And it's not because God is being lazy. It's certainly not that. And so notice the end of verse 11. They're told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So I've mentioned the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis many times in this series already. But do we see here how we are shown that that, covenant concept is legitimate there's a there's a fixed number that are destined for heaven specific names are written in the book of life revelation 13 and 20 we'll see that when we get to those places and so christ isn't delaying or tarrying but he is presently working to build his church he's working even through the events that are described in the first four seals i think of what the apostle peter says in second peter 3 9 through 10 just a couple books right before Revelation. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10. There Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, or like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the Lord is not slow or slack concerning his promise to vindicate his name. He's being patient until all the elect have the atonement of Christ applied to them. And when they, that is all the elect, reach repentance, then the day of the Lord shall come. Notice what it says again in verse 11 until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete. So the reason why this day of the Lord hasn't come yet is because that number is not complete. When that number is complete, well then, time for the sixth seal. So look at, notice how what Peter described in 2 Peter 3, 9 compares and how it's similar to what we see in the sixth seal. He sees the, the heavens passing away with a roar. It's, it's terrible sounding. And I think of like a lion roaring. And the heavens themselves, he says, are burned up and they melt. They're dissolved. And the whole thing, the whole act exposes the earth and the work is done on it. It's apocalyptic literature being used by Peter as well. He's describing through symbols what is taking place theologically on the day of judgment. The same thing that John sees in the sixth seal. And this is the same sort of judgment language that God consistently uses in the Bible. He's used in other books of the Bible as well. And so we need to see that big picture first. 
I don't want us to be caught up necessarily in the specifics of every terrifying and horrifying description. Here, that's not the point. The point is to be clear that judgment has come for those who hate God and for those who persecuted the church. And so listen to Joel chapter 2, 30 through 32. Joel, the Bible Joel, the, the book of the Bible Joel. Do you, do you have a, does Joel Beakey have a book in which he chapter and numbers his verses? Deacon, he might, Deacon? He, he might yeah. <laughs> Okay, verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls or isaiah 53 i i clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering there's many other places that we could look at as well too but notice the similarity of those verses in second peter 3 9 8 to 9 really and then joel 2 and and isaiah 50 listen think about those things as we read again verse 12 to 14 in revelation 6 When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it's shaken by a gale. The sky vanished, and like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is apocalyptic judgment language that is being used to describe the day of the Lord. Not necessarily literally these things happening. It's a day of terror to those who are not right with God. And all of the frightening aspects here and the dread and the awe and the terror that comes with them is God's answer to the saints' cry for help and vindication of his name. You know, if you're not right with the Lord, the the judgment will be severe and swift when it comes. It's as if the whole universe is crashing and the human race, widely speaking, is, is just undone. It's a terrifying day for those who are not right with God. And you'll have to wait for chapter 7 and chapter 8, which introduce the seventh seal for the church that remains on the earth uh, for the judgment, when that judgment comes to God's enemies. But they're not really being considered here. This is God's vindication of his name against those who persecute the church and really who who are persecuting Christ then, the groomsmen of the church until the second coming. And on the day of the Lord... God and all his almighty power will right all the wrongs of the world. The symbols of this passage, including falling stars, the cries of the wicked, the great earthquakes, the rolling up of the sky, and all, they're all descriptive of the upheaval that is coming on that day that God appointed to judge the world. The change is drastic. It's as if everything is being made new. The, the idea that, that's trying to be captured in, in these types of texts, including Joel and Isaiah, is that the words can't powerfully express the, the type of change that is going to take place on the day of the Lord, when God vindicates his name and his holiness and his righteousness is put on display. William Hendrickson says, We have no right on the basis of this description to draw conclusions with respect to the exact changes that will take place here on the earth and in the heavenly bodies at the end of this present evil age. And so just like with previous passages in this book, exact literal imagery isn't what we are supposed to understand. And that's kind of obvious, really, I think. I mean, the sun and the moon can't be seen by everyone at the same time. Even if it's, there's an eclipse happening or something like that, right? There's the other side of the world that can't see it. 
uh, one star can't fall to the earth, let alone stars. Our yellow sun, which is the closest star, if that got even just a little bit closer to us, we'd all be dead just from that, of course. So this is symbolic language that's given in order to make a point. The point being that it's a day that will humble everyone, but the enemies of God will be terrified especially. And there's another thing to notice here as well. This judgment here is especially being revealed against mankind, those who are still united to Adam and not Christ. Again, there will be believers on the earth when the day of the Lord comes. Not sure how many. Uh, Different theological systems have different answers to that question. But whoever is here when the day of the Lord happens, it it will be different for them than it will be for um, for those who are the enemies of God. And so note, this is the sixth seal, which is associated with the Son of Man. Man was made on the sixth day, the, the, the sixth number. And so the number of man is often attributed to six, and also, as we'll see later in Revelation, to 666. All right, we'll read about that in Revelation 13. So we have the sixth seal, and then if you look at verses 12 through 14, there are six objects of creation listed. An earthquake sets it all off, but then we see sun, moon, stars, sky, mountains, island. Second pairing of, of six, or the first pairing of six in the sixth seal. And then in verse 15, we see that the terror of the six dissolving aspects of creation are experienced by six classes of men. There are kings, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, and everyone else, whether slave or free. So six, six, six. These terrible judgments are coming down upon a group of humanity that is different than the ones that we'll read about in the next chapter where we see, like, for example, the 144,000 that are sealed. And again, not a literal 144,000, but that's theologically telling us something. We'll deal with that next week, Lord willing. This is the judgment here in chapter 6 in the sixth seal is the judgment that awaits those who won't bow the knee to Christ now. And it should compel us, friends, to ever be so thankful of the gospel, right? That these terrible acts aren't reserved for us because Christ took this and even much more upon himself at the cross. And it should, that should compel us to take our faith seriously. There's no room for, the, for us to be like those Laodicean Christians, those lukewarm professing believers and self-deceived believers that we read about back in chapter 3. Uh, knowing that this sort of judgment awaits those who don't repent of their sins and turn to Christ. And it should compel us to lovingly share the hope of the gospel with those that are lost for two reasons, I think, right? For one, because words fail to describe the terror that awaits those who aren't saved at the day of judgment. The things that we read about, I mean, they are, you might describe them as awesome, but not in the sense of like really cool and good, but like terrible. Awesome really has that root meaning that's awe-inspiring. Like this is dramatic. This is more than we could take or deal with. And we realize at that time that we deserve the same thing, yet we found, in, we found grace in Christ. And secondly, because who knows when Christ will return other than outside of when he's done building his kingdom which we get to share in through compelling people to turn to Christ through f- in faith and repentance. Do we want Christ to return? Which I, I think the answer is yes. And, and then what that means, we should be busy telling people about the good news and fulfilling the Great Commission so that the elect will be drawn in. 
because that's when the little longer will be over. And finally, let's consider verses 16 and 17, because the key figure in all of this is the Lamb, the Lamb Christ Jesus. So verses 15 to 17 describe an undone universe and a terrified human race, people of all classes. No one is safe from it. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're going to escape the wrath of God. People of all classes... They do something that sounds unintelligent on the surface, but what other choice do they have? They, they hide themselves in dens and caves. The sorts of actions that Jesus foretold of in Matthew 24, but then they cry out from there in desperation to the mountains and the rocks. And they read in verse 16 where he says, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These hardened men and women, people who had no problem persecuting Christians, people who didn't care about causing Christians to suffer, who had no issue with sending them to their death, now they can't even look upon the face of the Lamb. They call on rocks to just fall on them and crush them. They'd rather be in a cave and have the hundreds of thousands of tons of a mountain fall down upon them rather than lo- even look and see God in his wrath. And it's quite the image, isn't it? The wrath of the lamb. Uh, is there a less terrifying creature on the earth than a lamb? All soft and fluffy looking. But this isn't a normal lamb, of course. This is the lamb of God. And the the God-man, Christ Jesus, the lamb standing who was slain. It's not an actual lamb. It's the son of God who was living, who is living, and he was a sacrificial lamb on behalf of his saints. And these people who are opposed to him here are, are bearing the responsibility of hurting and persecuting the very ones whom he died for, the ones whom he loves. And just like I would be a fool and not a, a man of any worth if I just let people harm my bride and did nothing to vindicate my love for her and hers for me, well, Jesus would be a fool and evil if he did not let his wrath out upon those who harm and kill his bride, the church. You guys all have a dad and a mom, right? Wouldn't you expect your dad to defend your mom? You would, I would, I would hope, right? And Jesus, likewise, is going to pour out his wrath upon those who have harmed his bride, the church. You see, friends, there really is no neutrality in this regard. It's not that there are people who love God, and then there's a group of people who hates God, but then there's also this third group of people who are just wanting to mind their own business and they're neutral. That third group doesn't actually exist. There are sheep and there are goats. There are wheat and there are tares. There are elect and there are those who are not chosen or reprobate. To be neutral here is foolishness. The, the wrath of the Lamb is terrifying to those who have rejected him and scorned his love. And what we see here is that there is nothing more terrifying and more frightening than the face of perfect love turned against you. We've talked about this before, that God is omnipresent. That, so that means he is everywhere, that he is, everything that's created is sustained by and upheld by God. And so it's common in our culture to say that, well, you know, hell is hell because God's not there. Well, that can't be true because that would mean that God's not sustaining and upholding it. If God's omnipresent, that means God's actually in hell as well. And so the very thing that makes heaven so wonderful is the very thing that makes hell so painful for those that are in hell. Because when Christians, those who love God, when they see the 
the, the loving face of Christ, well, we rejoice, we're happy. But these enemies of God, when they see the face of Christ, it's terrifying to them. They'd rather have a mountain fall upon them. They'd rather have rocks cover them. And so when God judges the world, he's going to judge it through the man he appointed, his son, Jesus Christ. The very same Jesus who went to the cross to die for sinners will be in charge on that day of judgment. He's the true rider on the true right horse of Revelation 19. And apart from the gospel, that is a day of wrath in which people won't be able to stand apart from Christ. That's, there's a call back to Malachi 3 there in verse 17. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. But to close, I'm reminded of the last stanza of the hymn we sang this evening. It says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, to read of your wrath being poured out is truly terrifying. And especially it is humbling, Lord, knowing that such wrath would be for us if it was not for your kindness to us in the gospel offered through Christ. And so I pray, Lord God, that everyone here would take these things to heart. And that if there is, there is some here who aren't believing and aren't trusting you, that they would be granted belief from you, that they would see the, the weight of these things and find the pardon that is offered to us in Christ as so sweet and gracious. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and how it is that in it you took the very wrath that we deserve. Lord, we're so grateful to, to you for the mercy and for loving us so completely. And help us to think about these things throughout the week as well and to be prepared to gather next week to consider again what it is that your word continues to say. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, any questions or anything I could try to clarify? Yeah. So when they are, when it's talking about them going into the hills, that's beyond the time when they could, it's worth to see that as that's past the time that they could repent. That's them just. Yeah, this is the day of judgment. <laughs> yeah, the time of repentance is over now. And, and you notice like it doesn't talk about them repenting in that time, right? It's almost kind of like, a parallel to what you see with Judas, where he realizes he's done wrong, he's made a mistake, but rather than really repenting, he takes his own life, right? So you see what some people say, like, it will happen once the gospel reaches all people groups? Yeah. Is that um, uh, I think there's an element of truth to it, at least, because I know, like, so I have a, there I have a, f a friend who runs this ministry called Bible Translator Fellowship, that I've seen um, some of the statistics they put out. There's, like, there's a big number of cultures, communities that don't yet have the Word of God. And so if they don't have the word of God and if there's people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that are elect, then we would think probably there's people among those groups at some point that are going to be saved. But I don't know that if we should, I mean, 
I don't know if it's like a, a set number of like you reach all the nations and then boom now it happens like so so like when that last language and culture is bible printing is on the printing machine does that mean like it's time i don't know that i would say that you know but it is our command and duty to get god's word to to every person and we're confident that it'll certainly get to all the elect eventually that's a good question though I know that supporting Bible translation, that's a good reason to do so, right? Because we want to see it's better to be a Christian than it is to not be a Christian. If for nothing else, the things that we read about in the sixth seal. Because, you know, that's not going to be fun for anybody. All right. Cool.